Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. In negotiations, it's a lawyer's job to advocate zealously for their client. But to what extremes are we permitted to go? Can exaggeration of issues be allowed? Can lawyers flat out lie on behalf of their clients? And when, if ever, are threats a permissible tool? We'll discuss these issues as we cover the ethical boundaries of legal negotiation. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by a renowned expert on the topic, Professor Carrie Menkel Meadow of UC Irvine Law School. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks, Joel. Glad to be here. And I should have mentioned you've, uh, you've written not one, but many textbooks on the topic. This isn't a new subject that you're coming to now. No, it isn't. I've been with it for over 30 years. <laughs> I mentioned in the introduction that as lawyers in a negotiation, we're actually required to push for our clients' interests. Maybe you could frame a little bit uh, as an overview. What are the, the general constraints when it comes to ethical negotiation? It's a great question, and you started with what most lawyers think their duty is, to be a zealous advocate for their client. Now, when I went to law school long before you did, that rule was actually in the ethics rules. A lawyer shall zealously represent their client. And so for your audience, I want to tell everybody, in case they uh, didn't take legal ethics recently enough, that being a zealous advocate is no longer in the formal black letter rules of legal ethics. It has been relegated to the comments. The duty is to be diligent for your client. And yet, as you suggest, Joel, it persists in the culture of lawyers that our duty is to be, have a lot of zeal uh, in our a- adversariness for our clients, which requires us, so people think, to zealously represent our clients against the other side. But the modern uh, model rules of professional conduct, which is the ethical rule for all states but California, 49 states, the rule is you must be diligent. And the idea that you must zealously represent your client have been relegated to the comments. Well, that sounds to me like a good improvement and, and maybe even a good improvement in terms of PR we might not want to be thought of as zealots. We want to be thought of as as very diligent advocates for our clients. And the question is, what does that mean? What does diligence mean? Um, so one important thing for lawyers in negotiation is uh, diligence means that whenever a lawyer does something in negotiation, uh, they're actually supposed to consult with their client. That's rule model rule professional conduct 1.2. And it says that the lawyer may choose the means, that is how we're going to negotiate, but the client gets to decide the ends, the objectives of the representation, and it's the lawyer's duty to communicate with the client. So uh, when I teach lawyers all over the world in the United States and my own students, I teach them that part of what a diligent lawyer is supposed to do is discuss with the client, how are we going to conduct this negotiation? How far do you want me to go? And let me tell you, there are limits on what I actually can do. And so lawyers are actually required, um, I don't know how many of them actually do it, to discuss the means that they're using with their clients. Interesting. So not only are we required to discuss the legal issues involved and the, the principles of law, but we must also disclose and discuss tactics and strategies and 
you know, the, the tone that we may even take. That's one of my favorite ethical rules. Clients get to decide the ends and lawyers get to decide the means. Um, but, but what are the means? So um, do you, do you want to be an aggressive um, bully? Do you want to be, as uh, to put it in your terms, the old zealous lawyer that you could possibly be? And clients have a right to know that if a lawyer is going to be like that, to be very adversarial, to lie and to exaggerate and, um, and to get an agreement by using those kinds of tactics, one concern is that the agreement might potentially wind up being voidable later on. So my way of looking at this is that clients have the right to know how their lawyers are going to achieve their ends because whatever means the lawyer uses can actually affect the enforceability of whatever agreement is reached later on. Why don't we start with truth-telling? Are lawyers in negotiations, are we permitted, or when are we permitted, to lie on our client's behalf? My favorite question. Um, so uh, for those of you getting CLE credit, uh, the rule is Model Rule Professional Conduct 4.1, which says, a lawyer shall not make a material statement that is false with respect to any material fact or law. So notice the loyal wiggle worms in that, right? What is material? What is a material fact? And what is material law? Uh, and to a third person. So does that mean anybody on the other side of a negotiation uh, to someone who's not involved in the case? So I'll quickly review what we can do. Uh, one of my favorite issues. So the black letter rule is what I just told you. You can't make a mis material misstatement of law or fact. But the comments to rule 4.1, this is my favorite line. What the rule giveth, the comment taketh away. And the comment <laughs> says, there are three specific things that you don't need to be truthful about. You can puff or bluff, believe it or not, in the rules, meaning that nobody expects you to honestly say what your bottom line is or what your value is placed on an item if you're selling something or buying something. So we won't settle for anything less than $10 million here even though you know for a fact your client would be happy with half a million. Exactly right. And that is the kind of classic example that's always given. And one of the reasons I say this is my favorite comment is the comment says, generally accepted conventions of negotiation are such that we know that lawyers and people exaggerate when they are negotiating. And um, just if you'll let me do a little diversion here, in 2000, the American Bar Association was going to change these rules, and I was very active in uh, lobbying the ABA to try to change the ethical rules to say that lawyers had to be truthful and they had to be fair, meaning they had to be accurate in what they said, and also that the agreements that they reached had to be substantively fair. You can imagine where that went like nowhere. The, the standard was going to be unconscionability um, as in contract law. But that phrase that I've just given you, um, generally accepted conventions of negotiation, was put forth by another professor, J.J. White, now retired, but a former professor at Michigan, who said, we know lawyers do all these things. They puff and they bluff and they won't tell us what they really value, what their bottom lines are. And the ethical rules can't change that behavior because, very important, negotiations are conducted in private. And there are no witnesses. There's you and me, we're negotiating a deal together. And I may say that you lied to me, and then you'll deny it. And it's, it's he said, she said about lawyer behavior. 
So in 2000, 20 years ago, the ABA said, oh, you're right, we can't possibly monitor this. So we're going to put in our rules an acceptability of generally accepted behavior, which we know is puffing and bluffing and not representing the true value. So in the rules, it says you can't make, uh, you can't lie about a material fact or material law. What is a material fact? Well, a material fact, believe it or not, is a fact. There's a lot of case law on this. But for example, what's not a fact that you're allowed to misrepresent or puff or bluff about is your opinion about the value of something. So if I tell you I have this great necklace or I have a great wonderful company that I'm going to sell you, uh, and I tell you in my opinion this necklace is worth this much or my company is worth this much, that's my opinion. And a lot of case law says that's my opinion and I have no obligation to say exactly the value. It's your job as the person on the other side of the negotiation to investigate what the facts are and to determine what you think the value is. I have no obligation to honestly state it. So I could say that Joel Co. is worth $10 million, even though we don't particularly have any revenue. But in my mind, it's worth a whole lot of money and $10 million sounds right. But how about with relation to projections? Can I say we'll be worth $15 million next year if, you know, my numbers, you know, when I've done internal audits suggests that we'll still be worth, uh, you know, much less? If you have done an internal audit and you know what the actual facts are, but you say something else, you have now affirmatively and assertively stated an untruth, meaning you know what the truth actually is. That is actionable under state fraud law. So the ethical rules may say you may not make a misstatement of material fact. If you have done that, you've probably committed an act of fraud. That can in some cases wind up being criminal fraud, but in a sales situation, it's more likely to be civil fraud. So for lawyer negotiators, looking at rule 4.1 and the rule that says you shouldn't make a misstatement of material fact or law is one thing, but it's not enough. You need to know the fraud law of all of the states that you're doing business in. And as you can imagine, if you're barred in one state, presumably you know the fraud law of your own state, but if you're someone who negotiates, as many major negotiators do, all over the country, Technically, somebody should be writing a legal memo to the file in every negotiation that you do. What is actionable fraud in my state? Professor, we talked a little bit about lies, but how about omissions? When is not telling something crossing the line? Great question. And that too, uh, sadly, turns on the vagaries of state law. In some states, it's perfectly okay to not answer a question to not say anything at all about the true facts. Uh, so as you just said, you've done an internal audit. As long as you don't affirmatively say, this is how much my company's worth when you know it's worth something else, that kind of failure to state might be okay. And let me give you another example that's very famous also in the rules, in the comments. If you are negotiating on behalf of a straw person, you don't have to disclose who your real principal is. Uh, so, for example, here's two of my favorites. When Donald Trump was busy buying up property all over the world, he would set up a straw corporation. Why? Why do you think that is? I'm going to turn the questions back on you. Why would somebody not want to say who they really were? 
Well, maybe because he spent so much time marketing himself as a billionaire that uh, if they thought it was uh, Donald Trump on the other side, they'd, they'd jump up the price. Exactly right. As long as your straw corporation is totally legitimate and isn't a fraudulent one, that's an omission that um, our ethical rules anyway allow, with the caveat, unless it would be otherwise fraudulent. So if somebody wanted to come along later and say, I didn't know I was dealing with Donald Trump and uh, he took advantage of me, I'd like to reverse this deal, then it would turn on them being having to prove that someone set up the straw company with the intent to defraud potential people they're dealing with. So on the straw company concept, if the other side asks, well, who's really the money here? Can you lie? That's a great question too. Again, when you are asked a direct question and you answer it dishonestly, when you actually lie, the answer is no, you cannot, that's fraud. If you're directly asked a question and you lie and don't go tell the truth, that's fraud. What's trickier in negotiations is a very skilled negotiator will deflect. They'll just change the subject. So Joel, why are you interested in buying this company anyway? Let's get back to the actual valuation here. My interests are none of your concern, that kind of thing. And that's fine. You can say that. And if, you, if you're asked point blank, is this a Donald Trump deal? You, as the lawyer, perhaps you could say, I'm not, I'm not at liberty to disclose whose money is, uh, is invested in, in the entity at hand or something like that. That's exactly right. And so that's, that's, that's an important technique for lawyers to know. And actually, it can be used quite effectively. It's perfectly okay. That's an honest statement. I'm not at liberty to disclose to you why I'm selling the property. A lot of our law is still, as I said earlier, caveat emptor. If you want to find out some of these things, go do your own independent investigation. But I have no affirmative obligation to tell you why I'm selling. Uh, or who I'm dealing with. And it's honest. It's, I actually, myself, I prefer someone to say, I'm not at liberty to disclose. Why? Because that tells me I better be on notice and go do my own investigation. I, I may not be able to trust this person. You're almost encouraging the advocates, the lawyers, to, to be sneaky or to, to, shut up, to set up shell companies or to misrepresent or, or obfuscate the actual intentions of their clients. Absolutely. So uh, you, you put your finger on it. When people ask me what I do and I say, among other things, I teach negotiation ethics or lawyer ethics, uh, people will say, isn't that an oxymoron? Those two words don't come together. And they can. And so people like me, I'm part of a, a school of professors and practitioners. I still practice uh, and I'm a mediator that are trying to encourage a different culture in negotiations which isn't one necessarily that says, I'm just going to tell you everything about me and lays all the cards out on the table, but one that recognizes that to be a good negotiator and to be ethical, you have to maintain your reputation for being a truth teller. And so it's a very interesting question how this culture of lying and exaggeration and zealous representation got started, because some of us would argue, not just from an ethical perspective, but an economics one, we would have more efficient and better deals if we knew we could trust the person we were dealing with. If I knew that you were giving me correct information and you knew I was giving you correct information, it would be more efficient. We know we, we, know we could trust each other and we wouldn't have to spend thousands or maybe millions of dollars doing investigations of each other 
to find out what was really going on. So there's been an effort in modern negotiation teaching and some practice to encourage a notion of truth-telling as ethical practice because it makes sense. It's, it, obviously, I think it's morally better, but it's also economically better. It's more efficient. In, in the ethical rules, there's mention of another concept that's called reckless disregard for the truth. How is that different than lying? Well, it's the legal standard that, that's bigger than making an actual misstatement. Reckless disregard of the truth means you purposefully don't go to find out what the truth is so that you can try to say, ah, I didn't lie, I didn't know it to be true. Uh, the old ostrich defense. Exactly right. And so you have a reckless disregard of looking something up. Now, to give an example of where the law doesn't let you do that, it's when you're selling your house. The law requires certain disclosures. So when you're selling a house in most states, like New York and California, you have to say whether there's asbestos in the house, whether there's been lead paint in the house. Um, and here in California, we have to certify that the roof hasn't leaked in a certain period of time. So um, independent laws outside of the ethical rules actually require, and this is true in securities also when you're selling stocks and bonds, there are federal laws that tell you have to say certain things. You have to have certain disclosures. So if you were selling your house on your own and you didn't have a lawyer or a broker, you might not know that there was this obligation to disclose about lead paint or asbestos or leaky roofs. And so you could just try to sell the house. If someone pointed out after the sale that you hadn't inspected your roof or termites or any of that stuff and you did it on purpose, they might be able to avoid the sale because you would be exhibiting what we just talked about, reckless disregard of the truth. One of the key issues here for any lawyer negotiator when you're listening to all of this is you might want to do what I've called in some of my writing, plant a truth landmine in your negotiation. So you're dealing with somebody in a deal. You ask them a question you already know the answer to. Trial lawyers will know this is a classic device used on cross-examination. Ask the witness a question that you, the lawyer, know the answer to. What are you doing? You're trying to see confirmation or disconfirmation of whether that person's being honest with you. So when I'm negotiating, or I tell other people, to go, ask a question you know the answer to and you think the other side doesn't know you know. And so you want to do a lot of preparation to figure out what those questions are going to be. I mean, I'm sitting in a house here in California where I know there are termites in every house on the block, and it's a relatively new development. Um, and every once in a while, we see houses that are tented. So I'm on notice that even though I haven't inspected anything, I'm pretty sure there are termites in this house right now. And so that's the kind of thing. I'm, I'm on notice. I've planted my own landmine to myself. And future buyers could consult this video if you tried to wiggle out. Right. And so I'm on notice, you know, that if I don't do anything about it, that is precisely the kind of thing that could be reckless disregard. And it could cause a deal to be voided afterwards. One thing I want to say about that is the idea of being a zealous advocate is to get a good deal, right? And so you get a high price, or if you're the buyer, you get a low price. And then after the, you've successfully negotiated, you say, gee, I did great. I got a good deal. An ethical negotiator, an ethical lawyer negotiator, has to ask all of these questions about what will this look like after the deal is over. So we can sit there and think, ah, great deal, but it could get voided for all of these reasons afterwards.
you have a reputation in the market that may take a hit if you win too big at the cost of perhaps, I don't want to say it, but screwing the other side? Exactly. There's two very important elements in what you said, Joel. Number one is, um, I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to. Win, win, win. I'm not a win-win person, even though people th think I am, because I support problem-solving negotiation. Win-win means both parties are better off for making the deal. But as you described, win, win, win. The third win is the deal will last. The deal will, will have endur durability, and it will last, and it won't be voidable afterwards. Or lead to litigation. <laughs> right. And the second point as that you've made is reputation. And I want to just say very importantly that all the rules that we can talk about, the model rules 4.1, there are other rules 8.1, 8.4, these are all model rules of ethics. The most important enforcement mechanism for lawyer ethics is reputation. And my predecessor at Georgetown, where I taught for 15 years, was Eleanor Holmes Norton, now the U.S. Congressperson for the District of Columbia. And when she was an academic, she wrote a wonderful article that says, never mind all the rules. The only thing that's going to enforce good negotiation behavior is the reputations that people create and how they behave. Because when you get a reputation of not sustaining your agreements or taking advantage of people, people aren't going to want to do business with you. So reputation is the most important part of being a good and ethical negotiator. For those who are listening for MC Lee credit, the code for this part of the interview is 59999. That's 59999. And now back to the interview. What about the case that, you know, I'm negotiating a deal on behalf of my client. My client is selling a real estate asset. I make a representation that I believe to be correct and then later discover that I was wrong. Do I then have an ethical obligation or a legal obligation to go back and correct the record or was I fine because I believed it at the time? That question is found in the court reporters all over the world of people having different answers to that question. So again, very specifically, if it were a litigation matter, you do have a duty to go in and change. Any, any litigator would know that the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure uh, and the rules pertaining to discovery require you that when you're in the course of litigation, if you've made a representation in discovery or in litigation and the facts change, you have an obligation to change and correct the information. In a sales situation, far more complicated. Um, many years ago, I used to appear on before podcasts on panels with a very distinguished former partner at Skadden Arps. I'm not going to name him. And he was someone who did a lot of merger and acquisition law. His view was, in a big deal like that, buyer beware. The buyer should understand the valuation of the company and all the permutations and all the things and projections that might change. Um, and the seller doesn't really need to say anything about it. And I disagreed because until the deal closes, the seller is the one who has the information and the buyer doesn't. So it's a question of fairness and it's a question of access to information. If there is no way that the buyer could actually find out the changed circumstances, in my view, 
the seller has an obligation to disclose it. Let me give you an example um, that I use in my teaching, so I hope none of my students are watching this because I'm about to give the answer. Someone's about to buy um, a property in a municipality, and there are rumors afoot that the municipality is going to exercise eminent domain and condemn the property and take it. Well, that rumor would make the value of the property go way down. And I pose this question to my students. Is there an obligation for the owner of the property who has heard these rumors to tell any prospective buyer, well, you know, I'm going to sell it to you, but I've heard these rumors that the city or the state is going to exercise eminent domain and purchase this property. And it's one of those interesting gray areas because, to go back to our earlier conversation, is that a fact? No. It's not a fact. It's a rumor. So I don't have, many would argue, I don't have an obligation to tell you. Me, if I was selling that property, I'd be nervous about not disclosing it. Because if the deal goes through and the buyer finds out later and is concerned about it, and they decide to sue, um, they could say that the seller had the information and had some duty to tell me. The answer is not clear, obviously, from what I've told you. So far, we've talked about one of the limits on ethical negotiation, which is truth-telling or, or the limits on lying. Let's transition to bullying. How is this topic viewed by legal ethics? It's a great topic to teach. The rules don't prohibit it for the most part. We have a long list, those of us who teach ethics and negotiation, of bullying tactics. Some of them are sort of classic. Uh, for those people who saw the old movie, Aaron Brockovich, outnumber the other side. So if you remember the scene, a big firm comes in with about eight lawyers and they're opposite Aaron Brockovich and the lawyer, Albert Finney, that she's working for. And the idea is that you can bully by having, I mean, there are many movies that we've seen these scenes with the big law, big law firms. And the assumption there is there's strength in numbers. So rather than seeing it as unethical, the way I look at it is, how can we look at the effects of it and how can we moderate it? And the idea is with lots of people, you're going to feel intimidated and those big lawyers are going to take advantage of you. So you take a break. You don't make any commitments to anything without checking with your client or your, the other person you're with. And you, take you can take advantage of the bullies if there's 10 of them on the opposite side of the table. Who's speaking for the 10? So in situations where I've been outnumbered, I look for the person on the other side of the table that I think is the most reasonable, and I direct all of my attention to that person, um, and I don't listen to all the rest of them. So the idea about bullying is to understand when it's being done to you, and then to figure out what the countervailing moves might be. It wouldn't be outnumber the other side. If you knew they were coming with 10, and then you came with 12, you'd have to keep increasing the size of your conference room. And your legal bills. And, and sometimes it's very clear that one side has incredible legal resources, incredible finances to back those, and the other side may not. Yeah. So there's a list in a lot of mine and other people's writings of these bullying tactics. Another one of my favorites is the person that, in the old days, used to call you up on Friday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to make a deal. One of my big cases uh, happened that way. Lawyer on the other side said, I've got a great settlement for you, Carrie. Uh, and it was 5 o'clock on Friday, and I guess he thought I wanted to go away for the weekend, and so I would just say yes without talking to my client. 
And I said, um, no, that's not acceptable. This isn't a good time. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Stop the bullying. Don't stay part of it. Now, that doesn't mean that that bullying is not effective. I think I, I would reference uh, something that's been published. There was an article in 2016 in the American Economic Review um, done out of the Wharton School uh, at Penn, uh, which showed that after President Trump was elected, the students in a business negotiation class at Wharton, some of the male students in engaged in more aggressive bullying behavior than they had in the same course prior to the election. It was an incredible study. It got a lot of attention. And it also showed that although they were using aggressive tactics, their outcomes were not as good. So I love to talk about that study. It needs to be replicated, obviously. The question is, as we pointed out at the beginning, what's the culture of negotiation? And a bullying chief, chief of the country, I think this study showed, increased the acceptability of some of that aggressive behavior. But the study showed it wasn't that effective. I mean, that's a, a whole other question on, on what's effective strategy versus what's ethical. The, I guess the real tension is when it is effective. You know, I've had one lawyer mentioned to me that if they, they see that their counterpart appears timid, uh, they may throw in a, uh, an outburst. They may effectively yell at them, and that sometimes that can actually cause the lawyer to back down. If that strategy works, it's ethical? It's not unethical. I like your wording. So you're not willing, you're not saying it's, it's something you condone, but it's not unethical. Right. It can be quite effective. Um, there, there may not be as many people watching this as old as me, but when I was a little kid, Nikita Khrushchev famously banged his shoe on the table at the UN. And he said, we will bury you. So you may study that in school. And people were shocked, but it worked on some level. They thought, oh my God, there's a really irrational person at the other end of the table. And irrationality is another form of bullying, and it can be effective. And there is nothing in the ethical rules that says, thou shalt not be irrational. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.